And 69 degrees. Time for our Phelps Health Program, and your host is... Uh, what is, what's her name? Uh, winter. Da, 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 da. My girl, Summertime. Summer Overshot is your host. Good morning, Summer. Good morning, Lee. It has been a while. It has been way too long. Yes, nice to see you here. And today we are going to be talking about basic diabetes survival skills. And we have with us Jessica Fisher, who is a diabetic educator, and Patty Cox, who is a certified diabetes care and education specialist at Phelps Health. And they are your go-to gurus on everything diabetes. These ladies know this in and out. So I'm really excited to be talking today with them about all of this. But before we get started, I always like kind of like to open the program up and talk a little bit about kind of what your career entails and how you got into this sort of profession and why it's, it's your calling or your heart. What, what is it about it that makes you want to stay? Well, for me, hi, I'm Patty Cox, and uh, I've been a nurse for 39 years now, so I've done a lot of different things in my career, um, and, and the last part, my second, my second go around, since my first retirement, I decided to do diabetes education. And I think, you know, patient education is so important. And uh, the more that we know about something, the better we can deal with it and we can work through problems or complications and just know how to prevent things. So I really enjoy being with the people and seeing the progress that they make. Mm -hmm. And I'm Jessica Fisher, and I have been a nurse for about 17 years now. Um, I chose to become a diabetes educator because I had past experience of working as a school nurse. And so I worked with um, young individuals at the elementary grade level, um, teaching them, uh, being their advocate, you know, helping them to understand why this was happening and what was going on with them and taking care of them while their parents were at work during the day. And now, you know, I kind of get a mix um, working with individuals um, in their adulthood and just being able to help these patients um, and treating them as if they were a member of my own family. That's really cool. I, I like what you guys were saying a lot, especially um, just about at, with Patty, when you talk about how education is so important, it really is. And also Jessica being an advocate for your patients, that's so important as well. I think that if we're able to give people the tools and they feel empowered, their outcomes are so much better. So this is one of the reasons why um, I think the diabetes education program is so wonderful here at Phelps Health. And so let's get into the program a little bit and talk a little bit about what diabetes is. And it's kind of complicated at first for people to kind of understand because there's a lot of, there's several types. And um, I guess let's just start there. So what is it and how, and what different types are there and kind of what people fall into those categories? Well, I think that, you know, diabetes is actually the body's inability to either produce insulin or utilize it correctly. That's about putting it in the most simple terms mm -hmm. that you can. And there are many types, believe it or not. The most common types that we see, of course, is type 2 diabetes. And about 90% of our population has uh, type 2 diabetes. About 10% has type 1. 
And the difference between those is that type 1 is more of an autoimmunity. In other words, the body somehow decides for some reason that it is going to attack its own cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. And at some point, usually between childhood and early adulthood, the pancreas just stops making insulin. Type 2 can affect children. It can affect any age, but typically we see um, in the 40s, 50s, and of course older, where where the individual just simply produces insulin, but they the body does not utilize it correctly. And this can be from a number of reasons, what we would call insulin resistance. So maybe a person has has gained weight, lost weight, maybe they have stopped exercising, um, maybe there are other illnesses, maybe they have high blood pressure, or they um, are a smoker, or the big thing is that they have a family history of diabetes, particularly type 2. I was going to ask that if it was if it was hereditary at all. Um, it, it seems like sometimes you see that um, Families have a, a lot of people affected by it, and it seems to run through those, those families. Is it hereditary, or is it just based more on lifestyle choices, and, and, and what's the cause of that? Type 2 is more is considered to be more of hereditary um, than a type 1, because like Patty said, the type mm-hmm. 1 is more of a genetic makeup, um, and, you know, but, but type, type 2 would be, um, would be considered more of the hereditary. Mm-hmm. And is it because people tend to have um, similar lifestyles? Because I know with type two sometimes, because you were mentioning Patty, um, it seems like it's more of a, a later, uh, uh, older onset. So people are more of an adult age or um, getting up into their 50s, 60s, 40s, probably some. So um, is it choices that we've made through our life that has kind of exacerbated this to occur? It can be, yes. And then, you know, also just to, you know, we know that as we age, our body produces less and less of those beta cells mm-hmm. that produces that produce insulin. Um, so we do know that, you know, sometimes our lifestyle choices, maybe our change in our eating patterns, maybe um, skipping meals or snacks and, you know, maybe a lack of activity or exercise can, can lead to uh, those risks of type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the symptoms of diabetes and and are they similar between the two types or are they different well i think that you know that's the thing about diabetes most of the time people don't know that they have it until Mm -hmm. they go into a doctor's office or the hospital for some other reason and they find out and they're just kind of blown away by that you know Mm -hmm. but so so some of the symptoms that you might see that could be easily confused for a lot of things is extreme fatigue I kind of call it the wet noodle fatigue. In other words, you know, the difficulty of putting your foot in front of the other foot, you are so exhausted. Extreme thirst, you just have an unsatiable thirst, just can't seem to get enough to drink. Frequent urination is another one, so you're up all night long urinating all through the day. Um, Blurred vision could be one, and this is not a blurred vision like you would look at your computer for a while and look away and you're kind of blinking your eyes to get your focus back, but this is a blurred vision that you wake up with and you go to bed with. It just doesn't seem to go away. Uh, One of the last symptoms, and we often see more with type 1 than type 2, is actually an unexplained weight loss. 
And this is because the body is actually trying to find a source of energy to keep all the vital organs forming. So it tends to burn fat, and then you tend to have that unexplained weight loss. That's really interesting. So, and, and type one is also called, sometimes been called juvenile diabetes. Is that right? And is that because it's often, like you said earlier, discovered kind of when you're younger, early adult? Is that the reasoning for that? Yes, that's is that, right. Is that ever diagnosed in an older adult or not? It is. It is. And actually you can become, or you can have that diagnosis of type one diabetes at any age. Okay. But primarily, you know, it's often found in younger children or even in their early adolescent age. Um, but we have had individuals that have been diagnosed even into their mid thirties. Mm-hmm. So have they, this is just a question for me, it's, have they had it, do you think pretty much their whole life and it was just detected it later on or do you guys know or not necessarily no i mean if it's type one you know eventually in a relatively short period of time the symptoms will begin to appear okay so and these people obviously cannot live without insulin so whereas type 2 is more insidious and gradual and it kind of works undercover I say for a long period of time maybe up to 20 years Mm -hmm. so there is a difference between the two in that aspect okay so uh, type 1 would be more of like an obvious onset where you couldn't ignore the symptoms it wouldn't lay dormant where you could just ignore it correct gotcha okay so what are the ABCs of diabetes because you hear that term a lot Um, And people use that to keep track of of what they're doing and people that have been diagnosed. So what does that entail, the ABCs? What do we mean by that? All right. So our A is for A1C. Um, Typically, your A1C is kind of a snapshot of what your blood sugars are over the past three months. And, you know, it's, it's, it's basically that snapshot because without knowing what our blood sugars are, Um, on a regular basis, we really don't know, you know, what they are, kind of like our blood pressure, Mm -hmm. which is B for blood pressure. Um, Your blood pressure numbers tell you um, what the force inside of our our blood vessels is. And, you know, when our blood sugars are high, your heart has to work harder to pump that oxygenated blood throughout our body. Um, So typical blood pressure um, for someone without heart disease, we would um, look four of like 140 over 90 to be considered their norm. If they have cardiovascular disease, we're aiming for a blood pressure of 130 over 80. Okay. Um, And then C is for cholesterol. Um, Our cholesterol numbers tell us about the amount of fat in our blood. Um, We have good cholesterol, which is the HDL, uh, which protects our heart. And then we also have the bad cholesterol or the LDL that can uh, clog our arteries and um, can then lead to heart disease. So it's very important that we look at, you know, all of these factors with the ABCs um, because we know that our heart is a very vital organ in our body and we know that diabetes can ultimately impact um, all of these factors. So with the A1C, let's talk about that a little bit more. I think people, most people understand um, blood pressure and cholesterol pretty well, but A1C, can we elaborate on that a little bit more and just talk about what kind of targets are we looking for and, and when you're monitoring this, what are you... And is it different for gender? Is it different per person? Or is there a set goal? All right. So, um, yes, an A1C, like I said, it is that that snapshot of our blood sugars over a three to six month time period, typically. Um, And our goal for that would be a 7%, which tells us on an average that our blood sugars are 154 or below. Okay. Um, so that's kind of our sweet spot or our goal for those for those um, A1C targets. 
Typically, um, it is the same for both men and women. We don't really see a difference um, in. And sometimes with children, mm-hmm. especially if they have a type, if they have type one, we will see that their A1Cs may be targeted a little bit higher. So, okay. so kids are just a little bit different than the adults. But again, that seven percent or lower is really what we're. What, what you're going for in the majority of the population. So how often should people be checking their insulin levels? If they've, if they've been diagnosed with diabetes, how often should they be doing a, a, a monitoring or doing a blood check? Sure. So that kind of varies um, depending on the type of diabetes that you have. Mm-hmm. Typically, someone that has type 1 diabetes may be checking anywhere from four to six times per day. Oh, wow. Um, especially if they're taking insulin or, well, being type 1, they will take insulin at their meals as well. Um, for someone that has type 2 diabetes, that might vary as well, um, but it might just be anywhere from one to two times a day um, because typically they're going to check their fasting blood sugar in the morning and then they might check a blood sugar that would be two hours after that meal to determine their portions and you know how their body is responding to what they just ate so when we talk about fasting you always want to do like a fasting check why is that you hear a lot of people doing that first thing when they get up in the morning before they've eaten why is it so important to get that baseline or in the morning well, because there's a lot of things that happen during the night that our body is trying to survive when we're not feeding it or we're not providing fluids. And so this really gives us a good picture of how our body has performed during the night and what what has happened. Has our liver had to dump extra sugar because we didn't have enough in our bloodstream? And that's why our fasting blood sugars are high. So, so there are phenomena that happen when our body then sleeps and then when it tries to wake up as when we call breakfast, break the fast, that, that our body is waking up. So fasting is really a really good picture. And with type 2 diabetes, this is the one that is most typically the most difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the warning signs then if somebody's blood sugar is too high? And what can they do to, to try to get that down? So when their blood sugars are very high, oftentimes we feel very sleepy, you know, like Patty explained earlier, that that wet noodle feeling, you know, we don't have any energy, we just want to lay down and take a nap. Um, We're just extremely tired. We might have that blurred vision. Um, We might, of course, be very thirsty, noticing that we're going to the restroom a lot. So one of the most important things that we can do to help correct that blood sugar right away, rather than going to lay down and take a nap, would be to increase our water intake. By increasing our water intake, we're going to help flush that sugar out of our bloodstream. Um, And then, you know, we also just need to get up and move. Oftentimes we think about exercise and we think, you know, that means I have to go to a gym or I have to go outside and run. But simply just getting up and moving um, will really make a big difference because we're going to be burning that sugar uh, for energy. You know, I like to just tell people, think about how you feel after you've had Thanksgiving and Christmas meals. And so you're you're eating and you get up and the first thing you want to do is go to the easy chair and turn on the TV to watch football. And the next thing you know, you're asleep. So that's often how people feel when their blood sugars are too high. So um, I was thinking... um, I was thinking for me, it's like I always plan to go shopping and then I'm like, no, never mind. (laughs) Right. I always have this thing mapped out where I'm going to go Black Friday shopping and I'm eat 
and then it's like I fall asleep. The chair, I'm like, forget that. What right. did I? What was I even thinking? So yeah. yes, I I relate to that analogy. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So um, a glucose meter. What is that? Well, it's just a meter that you can purchase um, over the counter or or by your insurance. It just depends, and you can find them anywhere at your local pharmacy, at Walmart. Um, they are available anywhere. And this meter is designed to again give you a snapshot of what your blood sugar is at that given time. So should a person with diabetes, is it a good practice? And what do you guys recommend, um, especially for people that are just starting out? And, and also just as a good practice in general, do you recommend like they keep some sort of journal or um, kind of record of, of their numbers and how they're feeling every day? Yes, absolutely. Um, that would be able to provide the most help to maybe their educator as well as their provider as far as managing, you know, their diabetes. Oftentimes it's very hard just to remember from day to day, you know, what we had to eat or what our blood sugar was. So by keeping a log, it is, you know, it's all in one place. It's there that you can easily um, just share that with your provider mm -hmm. um, to have that available. There's electronic logs that you can use on a smartphone or even just a paper log. Mm -hmm. You know, some of our individuals that we see will even just use a notebook or an old calendar, mm -hmm. you know, because they have the date, they have the time that they checked and, you know, then their result of their, their blood sugar at that time. So, so you do encourage people to bring that in with them when they go to see their doctor or their provider? Yes, absolutely. Because the more information that they have available to us, um, and the more information that they can provide, the better that the, Patty and I can help them, you know, through their education to determine trends, you know, and notice, you know, why did our blood sugar spike after we had maybe spaghetti or rice, where, or why did it maybe drop lower at any other given time? So it really helps us to um, kind of find those triggers or uh, find those trends um, between our activity or our food intake and then what the result of that blood sugar was. So if, if I'm a diabetic and I have medicines that have been prescribed to me to help me with my condition, why is it so important that I stick to taking that medicine every day and don't stop taking it because I'm feeling better? Why am I feeling better? Typically. Well, typically that's because because all of the things that you are doing, the lifestyle changes that you've made and the medications working together are acting in a way to lower your blood sugars and to get them within a more target level. And so that does make you feel good and you have more energy and you're not tired. And so um, very important that you stay on track with your medication. However, there are times when, when you know, you may find that your um, diabetes medication may be causing you to have low blood sugars mm -hmm. because now suddenly all the things that you are doing has caused that blood sugar to come down where we want it, and now you have to have an adjustment to your medication. So, so it is important. It's important to take your medicines when you're sick even more. Because one of the things that happens when you have an infection is that your blood sugar tends to go up high. And so now the importance of uh, taking your medicines as prescribed is even more important. Yeah, I think that that's, um, we've talked on the program with other providers, and that's always a thing um, that people tend to do. And I've, I'm guilty of this myself. I've done this myself. Where you start taking a medication, you've been prescribed, you start feeling better, and then all of a sudden you think, I'm cured. 
I don't need this anymore. But it's it's because of all of the things like Patty was saying that you're doing that you're feeling better. So just I guess I would just advise people to really work with with their team, the healthcare team, before they stop doing anything just cold turkey. So like you said, you can make adjustments. If it's not working right, maybe there's some other option. But um, I just I'm always I just see that happen. I've done it myself. You know, we tend to think, oh, I'm feeling better. I can just stop. But that's not always the case. So can you reverse diabetes? And I'm, sp I'm talking about specifically type 2 here. If you reduce your carb intake and lose weight. Well, I don't really like to say that it's reverse. Um, I like to refer to it more as kind of a remission where you are really managing your blood sugar. And I don't even like to use the word control because mm -hmm. it's very difficult in our life to control anything. Mm -hmm. But we can manage something. And so, you know, if you are have made lifestyle changes, you are taking your medications as prescribed, oftentimes that does get you down where you are feeling better. And, and um, your life is much better at that point. However, the point being is that it's still there. And so once you revert back to old habits and old ways, oftentimes the blood sugars will come back up. And so you're kind of right back where you're at. So it truly is a lifestyle change. It's something that's not easy at all to manage. Um, when things are going good, it's easy. When things are not going good, it's not so easy. But it is a life, uh, a lifestyle change. And is a lot of what you do too, just to be to help be a support system for people. Because I, I was just when you were saying that, I was thinking how difficult that must be um, to have to make those changes when you didn't really ask for it. You're probably angry about it to begin with a little bit, if we're honest, that you have to do all of these things. Um, and I can see how people could get kind of down, a little depressed about it. Um, and eventually everything would be, be okay that they could, when they know that they can manage it. But how do you guys help people encourage them and support them and tell them, hey, this is, this is doable. We've got this. So that is a big part of our, our, our work and our, our team approach. You know, we do provide that support to our individuals. Um, sometimes we're the biggest cheerleader they might have. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we discuss challenges that they're having. We look at barriers. You know, what is it that, that is the, the biggest culprit? Or what can we do to help that individual overcome those challenges? Um, we have lots of resources at the hospital that, you know, we might even need to pull in some extra resources um, to help that individual. Um, but, but we definitely do our part and, you know, just open up that trust, develop that um, rapport or relationship with that individual so that they know that we're here to support them 100%. They're available to call us. They can email us. They can schedule an additional appointment, um, whatever it might be to find that motivation back mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. Because it's not easy. No, you know? and I can tell that you really care about your patients. And I can, I would think that, Patty, you especially probably make this a really fun program. I'm just guessing. <laughs> I'm just guessing that this isn't like a snooze fest. This is probably kind of, you make it fun and engaging. So that's really fun, too, that it's interactive like that. So how can people, we're running out of time, um, how can people learn more about the diabetes education program at Phelps Health? And then also... I know, Patty, you wanted to talk specifically about um, the flu shot for a minute, too. So I open that up. Um, well, uh, people can contact us at Phelps Health. 
Uh, our number to diabetes education is 573-458-7314. Uh, Jessica and I are the team of diabetes, and so we are here to answer any question that you have. If you're interested in diabetes education, you can call, find out more information for us. But also, we would encourage you to discuss it with your primary care provider. Because in order to um, come see us, you do have to have a referral from your primary care provider. And so we welcome you. We're here to help you in any way that we can. But I did want to put in a plug about um, our upcoming influenza season. Because as we know with diabetes, we're in a chronic state of inflammation. And that wears on our immune system, making us a little bit more susceptible to infections. And we hear every day about COVID, but with the influenza or the flu season coming about, that's actually like a double whammy. So I really encourage those of you, not only with diabetes, but with any chronic illness, to consider taking the flu vaccine this year um, to help you avoid possibly pneumonia and a hospitalization for that. And, and I would just say, too, that the, the flu shot is a good thing to take, no matter if you're healthy or not, you know, if you have a, a condition or you don't. I know we get it every year, my family and I, and I've done it for years, and, and I will continue to do that. So it's a good practice. So we've been speaking today with Patty Cox, Certified Diabetes Care and Education Specialist, and Jessica Fisher, Diabetic Educator at Phelps Health. If you missed part of the show or would like to listen to it again, please visit phelpshealth.org. Thank you so much, ladies.